1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world-leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. We look for certainty to know where we are to feel safe. Within our daily lives, we have constructed institutions for the illusion of certainty, marriage in the precarious world of relationships, schools and universities in the world of knowledge. Uncertainty is one of the strongest predictors of distress, Yet certainty is also the enemy of progress and change. So should we welcome the uncertain and the unknown as a vehicle for growth and potential? Or are we lost without the safety of the known? Joining us to debate the importance of certainty, our distinguished philosophy professor, Simon Blackburn, maverick post-postmodern philosopher, Hilary Lawson, and groundbreaking philosopher of value, Ruth Chang. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Maria Balaska.
2: Descartes founded modern Western philosophy on the search for certainty, yet Eric Fromm argued that the quest for certainty blocks the search for meaning. To be certain is, in a way, to have ended inquiry, to have called a halt to the new and to the original, to have, in a sense, died. Should we recognize the pursuit of certainty in our personal lives, in our pursuit of knowledge and in religion and philosophy is destined to fail? Should we instead welcome, even encourage, the uncertain and the unknown as a vehicle for growth and potential? Or is it that without the safety of the known, we are all lost? So let's meet our speakers. Simon Blackburn is an academic philosopher known for his work on metaethics. He has published over a dozen books on various philosophical issues, both for public and for academic audiences. Ruth Chang is the professor and chair at the University of Oxford, a professorial fellow of University College, Oxford, and an American professor of philosophy. She specializes in the philosophy of decision-making. Hilary Lawson is a philosopher and an outspoken critic of philosophical realism. He's best known for his theory of closure, which puts forward a non-realist metaphysics. He is the founder and editorial director of the IAI. So to begin with, Uh, I would like the speakers to offer a brief presentation of their thoughts on our first question. Should we recognise that the pursuit of certainty in our personal lives and in our pursuit of knowledge is destined to fail? And I'd like to start with you, Simon.
3: Thank you very much, Maria. I think it's temperamental, but I just don't like abstractions. So I think when somebody talks about the pursuit of certainty in the abstract, my instinct is always to think of concrete examples. So supposing I pursue certainty about when the next next bus is coming. I'd like to know when the next bus is coming, because I don't want to wait at the stop too long, and I don't want to miss it. So I pursue certainty by looking at the timetable, or by looking online, or whatever other resources I have. I learn that the bus is coming at 10.30. That's a pleasure, that's a good thing. I don't think I die a little when I do that. I just get to know when the bus is coming and I conduct my life accordingly and it goes better. And we all do that all the time. You want to know where you are. You find out where you are. If you don't know where you are, you feel lost. And feeling lost is rather unpleasant and can, of course, be lethal. If you don't well know where you are on the Ben Nevis plateau, you may easily die. So uh, the pursuit of certainty is often just a, a, co- a, a part, an important part, of the ability to live any sensible kind of life, in fact, any life at all. Now, of course, there are things about which we don't need certainty. We don't need to know some things. I don't need to know the details of, Ari- of Ariana Grande's love life, or for that matter, of Johnny Depp's love life. I can, I can afford un- un- being unknowing about those things, and the pursuit of certainty about them would be, I think, quixotic and a waste of time. There's none of my business, as I might say. I suppose the things that bother people are where we want certainty about big metaphysical issues, about religion, about um, who we are, about where we're going, about life after death. And there, I think certainty can be had. Um, you can be pretty certain you're not going to get an answer from the start, and that's a relief because it, 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 it removes the trouble of keeping on trying to get an answer. So certainty, you know, it's, it provides the compass which steers the ship and your problem in, li- in living is to make sure your ship steers as well as possible. That includes not wasting time on things you don't need to know about but being curious and spending time on things you do need to know about. And prioritizing those is the path of wisdom. So that's my answer to the question. It's not an answer to the question in the abstract but it's an answer that goes by looking at individual cases where you pursue certainty sensibly where you need it and other cases where you don't.
2: Thank you, Simon. That's great. Ruth, could I have your
0: (laughs) answer? Thanks, Maria. Yeah. um, So let me try putting a name to the distinction that Simon just gave us. We can talk about uncertainty with a capital U. That's uncertainty about big metaphysical questions. Is there a God? Is Simon right about moral facts being you know, ultimately expressions of attitudes that we project onto natural features of the world. Is um, Hillary right in saying there are an infinite number of ways the world could go and through thought, language, and culture we close down into one but don't think that that's real in any sense? I, th- I hope I've got you right. That's the kind of uncertainty we could have in the seminar. Let's call it uncertainty in the seminar. But we don't really have to worry about that. As Simon said, we can be certain that we're going to be uncertain for a long time. These debates have been going on you know, since we could think and talk. What's more interesting is uncertainty with the small u, And that's the kind of uncertainty we face in our daily lives. So you wanna know what time the bus is gonna come. You wanna know what's gonna happen if you quit your job and move across country and uproot your family. We might call that uncertainty in the kitchen. So it's uncertainty about things that you might talk about around the kitchen table. Now, that kind of uncertainty is certainly something that we think is a bane, it's difficult. Like if you have to decide whether you're going to quit your job and move across country, you want to know how things are going to turn out. But I think that maybe there's a way in which uncertainty in the kitchen isn't actually that big of a deal either. And here's what I have in mind. So if you think about the junctures in your life where you have to make important decisions, where you have to know stuff that's really important for how things unfold, those are cases where you have uncertainty, you have no clue how things are gonna turn out, But is uncertainty really what's problematic? Imagine God or some omniscient being who could see the two paths of your future. In one, you move, you uproot your family, you take on this new job, and the other, you carry on as you are. There are pros and cons. There'll be a better school district for your kids. You'll make more money. You'll lose the specific attachments. Your kids will hate you forever because they don't want to leave their friends, right? And the truth of the matter may be, from a God's eye point of view, that you know, it's just not true that one path is better than the other. And nor should we think, ah, they're the same, just go ahead and flip a coin. So the uncertainty our lack of knowledge about all the details of these two alternative paths we can take, that's not the problem. The problem is the fact that the value of these two paths are qualitatively really different and neither is better than the other. Thank you, Ruth. Is the pursuit of
2: certainty something we should just give up, destined to fail? Hilary?
4: Well, interesting. I think the certainty is been very important as in your introduction you were saying, because it, certainly from a philosophical point of view, the question of certainty founded modern Western philosophical thought, because Descartes sought to pursue certainty, and the reason that it matters, and it matters today in a contemporary space, is because in a world where there's a, a, you know, almost indefinite number of alternative perspectives, there are many people who want to feel that their particular view is certain and isn't just their own perspective and that they are, are confident about how it is. So my, my comments are really about that overall way in which certainty is used rather than the d- day-to-day uncertainties that Simon and Ruth have to some extent been re- uh, referencing. So in in terms of that bigger picture, I, as, uh, as Ruth was indicating, I'm a, I'm a non-realist philosopher. I do not think that language and thought enable us to describe what's ultimately out there. And therefore, I don't think that certainty is possible, certainty being a stronger form of of truth that we can be sure is true. So I, I don't think that's, that's the case. And instead, I, I suggest that we should think of the world as uh, uh, the reality as being open and, as Ruth was saying, that we, c- that we close that and we use those closures to intervene in the world. Now, I think that for a, r- for a variety of reasons, mainly because I think it's not possible to build an account which explains how our thought and language do refer to stuff out there. Um, But it doesn't mean to say that I think the pursuit of certainty is not sometimes valuable. I think in the history of science, the notion that we might say something which is not challenged, that we think through all of the circumstances in which it might be challenged, can be a very valuable thing. And maybe even the idea that there is something which is certain uh, has been a driving thing behind uh, knowledge as a whole. But I think it's a mistake to imagine that we can arrive and sometimes I'm misunderstood as saying that anything goes, that you can, uh, you can say whatever you feel like and uh, I- it'll do. I don't remotely think that. There's masses of constraint on what we can say. First of all, you have to convince people that the way you're holding the world is a reasonable one. And uh, that's quite tough, as most of you will have uh, found at some point in your lives. And uh, so there's lots of constraint on what we can propose and get other people to agree to, but I don't think we can, we can ever arrive. Just one final thought, that uh, I, I think that, again, sometimes people perceive the position I'm saying as being scary that we have to give up uh, some uh, a sense of knowing where we are, of having uh, you know, s- things that we are certain, and that feels scary. And instead, I want to say, no, 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 it, it's not scary. To imagine that things are certain is indeed, I think, a very dangerous space uh, at a personal level because you're likely to find yourself in a position where you discover that it isn't, and that's a real threat to your outlook. And instead, Um, uh, thinking of the world as being more open and being open to alternatives, I think, means that the world is richer and more exciting and has more potential than the immediate uh, views that we might have around us, which for the moment we are always at risk of thinking are certain.
2: Thank you, Hilary. Let's start with the debate now. And of course, when one talks of certainty, what's lurking around is Scepticism. So the first, the first question is, can we be certain of anything and if so, what? And I'd like to start with Simon, please.
3: I think, well, I've already um, said in my intro that I think we can be certain of lots of things. Uh, you can be certain about when the bus is coming, and that's just an example. I'd just like to pick up on some of the phrases Hillary used. He said we can't uh, refer to, that language doesn't permit us to refer to stuff out there. Now, I presume that out there is metaphorical for something because in the ordinary sense, we can certainly refer to things that are out there. Um, I go sailing with friends, and if you go sailing, you pick up a nautical chart, and it tells you what's out there, quite literally, what's in front of your boat and if you don't use the chart, and if you don't know what the symbols mean, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. So there are symbols, they do manage to refer to what's out there, the rocks, for example, and we do know how to use them. So somehow language or symbolic representation pulls off this trick of putting us in touch with the world that's out there. Now, Hillary might have meant and perhaps this is, um, I think, a, a richer vein to explore, that we are in the position which really can't left us in, that we can know a lot about how things appear to us to be, but we can't know the ding-an-zik, the thing in itself, the thing behind the appearances. And that's the idea of a kind of veil of perception or perception giving you only surface representations of the underlying reality. Now, whatever Kant thought, I think there's some evidence for this. After all, if you look at, say, uh, the salt on your table, all you, all you see is sort of white crystals. What it, what's underneath, what in that sense is out there, is, for example, sodium chloride. But you may not know that. Nobody knew it until the development of chemistry in the 18th century. So it's something that takes patient investigation. But that investigation can be successful. Chemistry can tell us a lot about what's out there, just as much as nautical charts can tell us what's out there. So I think we're very careful of using the generalisation what's out there as a suggestion of mystery. It needn't suggest mystery. It can suggest perfectly tractable problems whose solution gives us certainty about what's out there.
2: Do you think that's certainty or approximately certain? And I I wonder whether that's your disagreement between Hillary and Simon, I don't know.
3: Um, I I think it's bad philosophy, unfortunately, as as, as has been said already, perhaps suggested by Descartes, Hmm. to manufacture unreal doubts. I think any doubt about whether the stuff on your table is sodium chloride would be quixotic and, I mean, why waste your time on bizarre conjectures like that? Science fictions, as it were. And I don't really see why philosophers should prioritize that kind of rather, um, in a a sense, silly sort of doubt Mm. when there's so much going for one story and so little going for any other.
2: Hilary, is this where you're coming from? Is it that you're kind of using an extreme doubt or, or...? are you coming f- from a different perspective on this
3: well
4: i 'm not uh, motivated by the same same things that m- Descartes was mm-hmm. being motivated uh, it 's not i 'm trying to reach some, some certainty in that sense because in fact, my criticism of philosophical realism is uh, more profound than that. Uh, Simon and I have had these uh, conversations uh, uh, over the years, uh, and i 've obviously had many conversations with philosophical realists i think that you know i can point to the fact that when i first put forward this uh, outlook that we should think of reality as being open it was it was quite out there uh, in a different meaning to the word that we previously used for out there uh, but I- I- in recent time neuroscience i would ca- would argue has moved in my direction there are now a, a lot of neuroscientists across the globe in uh, in prestigious universities who you take the view that reality is uh, what we take to be reality is a function of how the brain is operating and the processes that are going on, and a representation to ourselves, and it's not a representation of what's out there. Now. I am a great advocate of checking to see whether your way of holding the world works or not. So, in, a, in an odd sort of way, I'm an arch-rationalist. You know, I mean, in the contemporary world, there are many aspects of it in this sort of postmodern space, where people imagine that you can hold all sorts of views. You don't have to look very carefully about how they apply, and uh, and there's a casual uh, attitude to empiricism and rationalism. Indeed, uh, a, a criticisms of it. But I, I don't. I don't. Hold that view at all. I, I think that uh, we have to look very carefully at what we say and see whether the world does operate in the light of holding it like that. So hold this framework, uh, work with it, and, and does it do what it, it's, it's proposed to do? Does it enable you to intervene in the way that it, it does? But Uh, You shouldn't imagine that you've got to the end of it. There are going to be a whole load of other people who are going to come along with different ways of accounting for this. And the idea that, you know, if you look at a crystal of um, salt, that it is sodium chloride, I think is a mistake. Uh, I think that you can indeed see it as sodium chloride, that's the function of the periodic table, the way that we developed chemistry. Uh, It's very powerful, it's amazingly successful, it's an enormously powerful model. But there are many other ways of thinking of salt. Uh, It can be a great seasoning, and um, uh, perhaps different types of salt uh, generate uh, better seasoning, and maybe it's more useful for you if you are a cook to think of it in terms of the vocabulary of seasoning rather than in the vocabulary of sodium chloride. And these different ways of holding the world are often not incompatible, of course. I'm not saying they are incompatible. Sometimes they are incompatible. But that doesn't matter, because what's going on is they are ways of holding the openness of reality.
2: Thank you. I'd like to listen to hear
0: uh, what Ruth has to say about that. If you have any thoughts on yeah. what Hillary and Simon are. trying to digest what's happening here. So I just wonder what, so yes, of course, Salt can be understood as sodium chloride. It can be understood as seasoning or that magical ingredient to your pot roast or whatever. Of course, that's true. The question is whether the right way to understand all those claims I just made depend on this view in the seminar, right? The view in the seminar is the world is open, right? Or Sorry, I'm not going to I don't know what your view about the natural is, but forget about forget about the stuff in the seminar room. I think both of these gentlemen agree that there are, you know, just common sense. You can represent things in lots of different ways and we want to be able to do things with our representations that meet our goals, allow us to flourish, and so on. So I implore us to leave the idea of uncertainty or certainty in the seminar out of this discussion. What we should talk about is the kind of uncertainty that we face in our lives, the uncertainty with the small u, and try to figure out should we, you know, what kind of impact does that have on our lives? Should we try to pursue certainty in the kitchen? And if not, what should we be doing instead? Suppose you, you're going to the hardware store, right? you're at the hardware store and you think, oh, did I leave the lights on in the house? And you're uncertain as to whether you left the lights on in the house, but then you start to replay, you're leaving the house, you oh yeah, I think I might have switched them off. You can be what philosophers call practically certain that you turned off the lights in the house because with respect to what matters, Right, the degree of credence you need in order to be certain, it depends on what turns on whether or not you left the lights on the house. Okay, the bill will be a little bit higher, maybe you contribute to global warming. Right. That's very different than if you're contemplating, oh no, did I leave Junior in the car <laughs> in the parking lot right, with the windows rolled up? There you need a higher degree of credence in order to be practically certain that you didn't do that. So we can be certain, we can be practically certain about a huge number of things, and if we're not practically certain in this way, we can't get on in life. Ruth, can I keep you going on this? Because you are actually the, the
2: first opening speaker for the second theme, and the second theme is just whether Eric Fromm was right to say that the quest for certainty blocks the search for meaning. So I think it is a question about whether it is desirable. And could you could you say more or expand
0: like now that Okay. So I think the way certainty is being used here is if you're c- if if you've got certainty, sorry, let me put it more precisely. Certainty is being used here as if it entails a right answer. Okay. So Imagine two worlds. Suppose our world was like this, that there was always a right answer to any question you could ask about the natural world, about normativity, about how you should live your life. If that's how the world was, then pursuing certainty would be awful, right? Because our jobs would then be to just figure out what the world is telling us to do, and then to do it. So, we, c- you know, AI could be perfectly rational in this world. There's nothing special about us. Compare that with a world in which the world is open, there isn't always a right answer to what you should do, what you should believe. It's in that space where we could actually perhaps find meaning because the world hasn't told us what the right answer is. What we don't want is we don't want to think that the world is a place where there's always a right answer and that we're being led by the no's to do this as opposed to that. We want the freedom to find meaning within a kind of constraint, a fence that the world creates for us. So we want certainty to be just here and we want the freedom inside to find meaning. Hmm. Yeah.
2: Is it perhaps that you agree, like what you said earlier about holding the world right? Is that? Yes.
4: Yeah. Uh, I, I, d- I mean, d- I think the uh, proposal of a way of going about things, uh, certainly there's uh, uh, q- q- quite a lot of parallels with the uh, sort mm-hmm. of thing that I'd be saying, what Ruth is saying. I, I just wonder sometimes then, Ruth, when you were saying that, whether you are implying that you have an answer to it. So you began by saying, um, well, uh, practical uncertainty is like this, or certainty is like so-and-so. And And the bigger question, which in a way you're encouraging us not to look at, I wonder whether that's embedded in your vocabulary, whether you like it or not, you know, that, that, that in your description you at least give the impression that you have a version of what certainty and uncertainty is, which is the case.
0: I think that we here can figure out, each of us, whether we can afford to buy the new house, divorce from the question of whether or not there's this property of affordability out there in the heavens, right? That's real, that's part of fundamental reality. That's a question for the seminar room, and the small U uncertainty that I think is worth talking about is divorced from that question.
4: But you've just said, it is divorced. So that's your view. So you're giving us, you're telling us, this is how it is. This bit is divorced from that bit. And so my question to you is, well, do you really mean that, do you mean I have said how it is, and that's how it is out there, or should we take what you say as a way of saying things? You know, are you saying as I would encourage you to say, I hold it like this, I see uncertainty like this, I see certainty like that, and it's a way of holding it. Uh, See how it works, given my account of it.
0: So that's a nice picture of how we could get along with one another, instead of saying, you know. (laughs) The war in Russia, uh, the war in Ukraine is a terrible thing. We could say, here's how I hold things. I think that it's an unjust war. How do you hold things? That might be a nice way to proceed, but that's not, I think, ultimately, so I'm going to be very concessive here, it's a kind of notational variant. If you want to carry on that way, go ahead. Mm -hmm. It's be a nice person, which you Probably are, so but um,
4: so, so don't, don't you think?
0: But actually we're not believing
4: actually you do believe in certainty. You, 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 there's the illusion that you don't, but actually you have certain views. You think that you're right about them, and and you're saying this is how it is.
0: Yes, can but I, I'm not just saying uh, this is how it is out there in the seminar room. I'm just saying here we are, people living together. Here's how it is. It's really wrong to cause suffering for its own sake, that's just wrong.
4: But I get very nervous of things when people say, that's just wrong. That means I hold it as wrong. Somebody else might hold it some other way. And I think frequently when we are certain that something is wrong, that's just when we are at risk of doing things that are really problematic.
2: I'd like to hear what Simon has to say.
3: Well, I just wondered if your argument is a bit too strong, Hillary, because mm, it threatens probably. to encompass you. You, after all, have said various things <laughs> to yeah. us, yeah. and I could start to getting all cross and saying, are you saying those things are true? My yeah. God, goodness me, you're a dogmatist. You're, you're involved with reality. This is metaphysical ter- terrible, terrible. Yeah. Well, so so, so doesn't I- your argument encompass your own views? No. So, so that self-referential
4: question is the one which has driven my whole philosophical thinking, how to overcome the problem, that problem of self-reference. My first philosoph- you know, significant philosophical uh, book was called Reflexivity, the Postmodern Predicament. And of course, the whole issue about how I can present my case to you and try and make it convincing, and yet not say this is true, is absolutely central to the uh, theory. I'd be very happy to elaborate on that, but I think it might might uh, uh, rather distract us. Can I can I make a have.
2: point here? That, and I don't know if it's helpful. I think you're all three of you are t- kind of trying to articulate something, and I'm wondering whether a distinction between. A Wittgensteinian point, basically, about agreement in judgments, like the certainty that comes from agreement. I think maybe that's what Ruth was talking about. And then the, cer- the, the other kind of certainty, which is almost like a scientific-like certainty, where we think we'll, we're getting to the core of something. Is that is this something you are trying to um,
0: distinguish?
2: No. no. Oh. <laughs> Anyone? Oh.
0: <laughs> I think agreement is a scary thing because you know people agree that ah she's a witch let's burn her. Mm. Um, I I think what's what's interesting is that I think what's motivating Hillary is politics. He doesn't want war and disaster. He wants people to be nice and to say I hold things this way, and you hold things that way, and let's not pound our fists on the table. And get out the howitzers. Um, But I think the politics should be separated from the philosophical argument uh, first and then you, you know, you look where your philosophy takes you and you think, oh well that's not good. So we have to make adjustments, right? But the theory is the theory. The arguments go where the arguments go.
4: So uh, just in response to that, I would say that um, my uh, account to you is not driven by the idea of wanting the outcome. It's, I'm sure, the case that how it's perceived and how it's understood to function in society is maybe one of the reasons that people might choose to adopt it or not. But I, I, I think that what, uh, what was really motivating me my, my point there is that I think that there are often implicit certainties that people pretend they don't have. And um, within, with analytic philosophy, for example, within the, in the way that m- a lot of mainstream philosophy is, is done in, uh, in Britain and North America, I think that uh, the word common sense is often used as a way of covering the fact that there are implicit assumptions which are built in which are uh, being claimed as being certain, but they're not actually expressed as such. And so uh, I was just encouraging, just thinking about how we are actually presenting our account. And indeed, I'm, I'm encouraging not that we should just you know, get along with everybody, Because, of course, uh, there are things that we can feel very strongly about and think, I think this is how we should hold the world. And I profoundly disagree with the way that you hold the world. And let's look really carefully about how my uh, account of it it works and whether that is effective or whether yours is. But let's not imagine that we can ever arrive, that there isn't a, 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 a God's eye view that we can get to. That somehow means we can stop thinking that uh, there might be another way of holding this that might be a better way of interacting.
2: I need to move on to theme three, and I'd like to hear from Simon. So theme three is, if we come to see ourselves as being more uncertain, will this be a vehicle for growth and potential? Uh, It is is a version of what we've been discussing about whether it is desirable or not, um, and about the future. So Simon, would you?
3: Well, I don't know about a vehicle. It's certainly a motive for growth and potential. That is, when the scientist, for example, or the investigator, the detective, comes across something and he knows he doesn't know the answer, then, of course, he can try to grow into somebody who's nearer to knowing the answer. I mean, I take Hillary's scepticism about God's eye points of view. There may be, always be further things to be said. I don't know what they are in the case of the bus timetable. There might be further things to be said. I mean, maybe, the, maybe there are people down at the bus depot who knows the bus isn't going to run to the timetable, and I'd like to hear from them, but since I don't and can't, I have to put up with the timetable. But, that, but no, in a, in a real-life case where we're curious about something and we don't know the answer, that is the opportunity for growth Um, for growing in understanding, growing in knowledge. Um, And science progresses, as everybody says, on the shoulders of preceding scientists. Um, So where they stopped, we start, and so it goes on. So yes, growth and potential are very much part of the the agenda. Um, Anybody who's curious about something is anticipating being able to grow into somebody who's satisfied that curiosity. And that's a good thing, obviously. I mean, I, I think th- the difficulty with Hillary is that some of the things he says sound quite civilized. Um, <laughs> 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 um, that is, that is he's, um, he's in favor of uh, what's sometimes called fallibilism. Um, usually uh, attributed to Karl Popper. So Karl Popper thought that it's wrong for science to try to achieve certainty. It's wrong to criticize scientists because they were wrong. Uh, It's right for science to proceed by a system of hypothesis, deduction of consequences, potential refutation of those consequences, adjustment to the hypothesis, and so it goes on. So it's it's an endlessly fallible process but one which nevertheless makes progress for all that. And I think that's, that fallibilism is a very civilized thing to, s- to insist upon, and I'd be the last person to, to try to knock it. But I do think that en route, we do get particular things right.
2: Would you then be the verifiability person, and then Hillary would be the fallibilism person? Would, would that be a way to put it, or not?
3: Well, that's, that's, uh, that's a help. Um, mm. Popper, of course, was very weak about verification. Mm. Yeah. And he seemed to think that you could falsify a hypothesis without verifying anything. Whereas you've got to verify something. You know, if, you're in, if your instruments are telling you that some result is not as you expected, one of the things you have to do is verify that your instruments are telling you the truth. Uh, and that you might have to calibrate them or recalibrate them or look at, look at grit in the works, whatever it is. So you have to verify things to falsify other things, yeah. and I think that by uh, that polarity was one which Popper wasn't very good on, but um, that's another matter. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Hilary, you've already um, mentioned how your position is not relativism, and so going back to theme three, is it? W- what, what are the dangers for this? Leading to a dead end relativism, or is it a growth? Is it a vehicle for growth and potential?
4: Well, for for sure, if people imagine the proposal that we can't be certain of things means that we can casually uh, present it as, well, this—that's how I see uh, it—then that's a very dangerous path, Mm. and and uh, uh, that's a sense in which I'm say I'm much to some of my uh, audience's dismay, uh, I'm actually an ardent empiricist and rationalist. I think that you have to propose things and you have to look very carefully about whether the way things break out makes sense in the context of what I refer to as your closure, your theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm totally uh, it, uh, on that side And And in relation to your question about you know, is is uh, being open always a good thing? And well, n- no, it isn't. Uh, sometimes it's quite important to hold on to the framework that you've currently got and to pursue that. And as I was saying at the beginning, I, I think that Um, You know, an idea that science could operate by, you know, just having uh, an infinite number of different theories uh, is not going to be very effective. You have to build on ones that are really good and really explore what might be the case. But I think the idea that you are somehow uncovering the truth or you could be certain about it limits your... Uh, sense of what could be different and how you could hold the do it differently it limits your sense of how you could hold it so that things would be possible for you that aren't possible at the moment and uh, doing that I think has a pretty radical effect on the way that you might think we can converse and and hopefully uh, I think there are, there are good uh, uh, political grounds mm-hmm. for, for, for proposing it as well
2: Ruth your thoughts on whether there's a dead end of relativism here in what you're arguing for, and how we would avoid it.
0: Yeah, um, I'm thinking hmm. that okay. So we have both of the gentlemen like fallibilism, but I real I think actually what's going on in Hillary is not fallibilism. I something I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. I,
4: I'm neither I neither believe in verification or fallibility. You can't you know, no experiment is going to be prove is going to prove something or disprove it. You can always interpret that experiment in the light of your theory. Um, okay, I, but I mean, you've just been involved, I've just been involved in, in hosting an event on, on Mysteries of the Multiverse, and you see, in terms of contemporary scientific theory, that's just what goes on. Everyone just interprets the results in the light of their particular way of thinking about it.
0: Yeah. So another way to put the difference is that if you're a fallibilist, you think, yeah, there's a truth, but don't be so arrogant to think that you've got it. you got to think, okay, I c- could be wrong. But there's an I- another interesting idea, which I'm, reading from what Hillary's saying, which is, you know, some notions or propositions are essentially contestable. So you take the idea of justice, there is no single one true best theory of justice. There's just a bunch of different theories um, and they can't be ranked or something like that. And I think that that's absolutely right for a wide swath of the stuff that we care about, normative claims in particular, um, that doesn't lead us to relativism because, you know, as Hillary put it, there are constraints all over the place. Uh, but it gives us the freedom I was talking about, right? We have the 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 constraints of the world and and uncontestable norms, f- creating a fence, and then we create meaning on the inside. I want
2: to take. Just a few seconds to thank our lovely speakers, Simon Blackburn, Ruth Chan, thank and Hilary Lawson. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world leading thinkers.